You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, products have names, and most of the time we just sort of take for granted that they got these names in uninteresting ways. But we'll explore one with an interesting history that you probably use every day and definitely will never look at the same again. What if you could figure out a way to gamble and gamble with big money and never really lose? Mattress Mac just may have figured it out. In medieval Japan, one of the highest ranks a person could achieve in society was the rank of a samurai warrior. Typically reserved for people native to Japan, we'll discuss the story of a man who broke all the conventional traditions. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, we were talking before the show about Bluetooth, and I didn't expect that you would have such strong opinions about Bluetooth. So here's my issue with Bluetooth, okay? Almost everybody at this point has Bluetooth in their life, if not in their vehicle with them. So your phone connects, you play music from your phone, you probably have wireless headphones that that connect through Bluetooth. It doesn't always work. So it works most of the time, but it doesn't work all the time. So I think the faultiness of Bluetooth is why we will never have 100% automatic driving vehicles. Because if you're telling me that Bluetooth can't work all the time, I'm not going to jump in your Jetta and expect that you're going to get me there perfectly safe. So you think Bluetooth is sort of like an example of the greater flaws of society and technology in general. We've developed a robot that will clean our house. Let's stop there. We don't need a robot to start cooking us dinner. Because you give a robot a knife, all of a sudden, you might get murdered. I think they made a movie about that with Will Smith. We've been warned. That's all I'm going to say. We've been warned. <laughs> well, Dave, products have names. And most of the time, we just sort of take for granted that they have those names without really thinking about how they got them. And one of those products for me is Bluetooth, which is sort of something I just always took for granted as probably being some sort of technological reason that I didn't really understand. And in today's world, it's all around. It connects our phones to all sorts of things from music speakers to cars to homes to even your toothbrush. But behind the name is a story that you'll never be able to unlearn after I tell it to you. So the name Bluetooth actually comes from a Scandinavian king from the 10th century, more specifically Harald Gormson, who ruled Denmark and Norway, actually uniting the two regions for the first time under his rule, which lasted from 958 until 985. And while that is probably what he is most known for, he was also known for his prominent dead tooth that had a dark blue shade, earning him the nickname Bluetooth. Okay, so how do we get here? Like, how did we connect this Viking king to the technology that pairs your phone to your car? All right, Dave, it's 1996. Companies were racing to develop a short-range radio technology, and the three big companies who had early prototypes, Intel, Ericsson, and Nokia, realized that the best way to actually develop and then create this technology was to create an industry standard that they all would contribute to 
representatives of each company got together to lay out a plan, but the plan itself needed a code name. Jim Kardashian, a representative from Intel and evidently a colossal history nerd, suggested the name Bluetooth since King Harald Bluetooth was famous for uniting Scandinavia and their technology would be uniting the PC and cellular industries with short-range wireless link. After the technology was finally developed, though, it needed a permanent name, and Bluetooth had never really even been considered. In fact, the board even voted on officially calling the technology PAN, P-A-N, which stood for Personal Area Networking. But about four weeks out from the launch event, there was a problem. After doing some research, all the names in the running, including PAN, were very poor candidates for trademark. The board needed a name, and they needed it fast. Coincidentally, the name Bluetooth actually worked very well from a trademark standpoint, and so the name stuck. So we have a name, but now we need a logo. And I know what you're thinking, Dave. Isn't the Bluetooth logo just a B, but it's written in some sort of weird font? Well, no, it isn't. The Bluetooth logo is actually a combination of King Harald Bluetooth's initials written in Nordic runes. The logo leaned into the name, and it's stuck ever since. So Bluetooth essentially got its name and logo because some history nerds named it, but then waited until the last minute instead of rebranding and just had to roll with it. But to me, it's an interesting story on how things are named, but then how names just sort of stick and then are eventually taken for granted. But I know, Dave, after learning this at least, I can never look at Bluetooth or the logo ever the same again. So I tried to find some data on how successful Bluetooth uh, devices are at connecting. Like, what's their reliability? You really just need to just prove this to yourself. (laughs) More than to to anyone else, just to yourself. I do. And so I found uh, an article on electronicsforyou.com. Their tagline is, if it's electronics, it's here. Sounds legit. Well, I didn't really think it was, but it is because this entire article, which is titled Understanding Reliability in Bluetooth Technology, is like somebody's dissertation. I, I can't decipher this article. No, you're just you're just a simple man. Like you want to get in the car, you want to turn it on, and you just want the Bluetooth to work. But now I feel I feel really bad about myself because I can't decipher what he's saying. <laughs> Okay, Jay, there are scenes or memories in our lives that we think about fairly often. You know what I mean? Like, to borrow a phrase from one of my favorite movies, Pixar's Inside Out, these moments are called core memories. Some of them are huge, like maybe the birth of your first child, your marriage, or a job promotion. Others are (laughs) kind of weird, like this one that I'm about to share. Jay, one of my core memories actually happened in a casino, believe it or not, which is really funny on its own without any context, but it's especially funny if you know me because I don't like to gamble. I have a lot of friends that have actually been sucked into the allure of sports betting now that it's so easy to do on apps. Thankfully, they all keep it responsible, though, so they don't lose their homes, but I'm just not into it. I've never really liked to throw my money away. I can understand the thrill of it though. I I mean, I do love fantasy football, but still. Anyway, my core memory, Jay, is that I went to a local mid-sized casino a few years ago to actually just eat at the buffet restaurant there with a friend, believe it or not. 
Well, while we were there, I happened to notice a sweet little old lady pull out a wad of cash and just feed the slot machine 20 after 20 after 20, like the machine had a hunger that could never be satisfied. (laughs) Jay, it made me physically ill to watch this little sweet lady throw her money away, and now she's become the sweet old face of gambling for me. It's a core memory, her doing that. But Jay, how about you? Do you uh, you need a little gambling fix every now and again or not? No, I don't gamble because I'm self-aware enough to know that I have an addictive personality and that if I were to do something that would give me a rush like gambling, that I would not do it in a healthy way. Well, Jay, one big avenue for gambling is horse racing. And we just passed the most famous horse race of them all, the first leg of the famed Triple Crown, the Kentucky Derby. And Jay, the 2022 version of the Kentucky Derby was more than just a horse race where everyone wears bonnets and drinks mint juleps. It marked the latest public gambling opportunity for a man best known by his nickname, Mattress Mac. Jay, a man who has somehow figured out a way to beat the odds. A man whose strategy can best be explained this way. Heads, I win. Tails, I win. Jay, in case you or our audience has never heard of him, furniture mogul Jim Mattress Mac McInvale, who owns a small chain of Houston, Texas-based furniture stores named Gallery Furniture, has made a name for himself through the years by placing clickbaitish, outlandish, headline-grabbing wagers that, believe it or not, are not made in the hopes of achieving gambling glory. No, no, no. Instead, Mac places bets as a form of viral advertising, with his bets serving as hedges against a big sales promotion in his stores. During major sporting events like the Kentucky Derby, the Super Bowl, the World Series, or the NCAA March Madness Basketball Tournament, Mac will place a humongous bet on one team, typically a team that's somewhat close to Houston if he can, and offer his customers a full refund on their furniture purchase if he wins. To better explain, Jay, let's look at this year's NCAA Men's March Madness Basketball Tournament. So Mac placed a $5.5 million bet on the Kansas Jayhawks to cut down the nets and ran a promotion in his stores that would refund all customers who spent $3,000 or more during a certain time period on select types of furniture and mattresses. And Jay, guess what? Kansas won the tournament this year. Customers lined up at the store the next day to collect their refunds, some for up to $40,000. I've always heard about his promotions on the news, but I never needed furniture until now. Robert Cruz, who now has a house full of new free furniture, told (laughs) Forbes. When I heard the score, I said, wow, this is cool. Jay, and it works. Mac has used this crazy promotional idea to help grow his business. One he started with his wife in 1981 to yearly sales of over $230 million. And Jay, even when he loses, Mac typically wins. Back to this year, Mac bet nearly $10 million across four betting boards and won $13.5 million when Kansas took the title. His stores sold a total of $12.9 million worth of furniture during the promotion. So after he refunded everyone during one of his big refund parties that he holds at his stores, he still made over $500,000 in profit. (laughs) 
And Jay, the genius, obviously, behind what Matt calls his huckster promotions is that they really serve two purposes. They are part marketing gimmick and part massive business boom. Max says it's not really the gambling, though, that brings folks in his store. No, what really brings them in, he says, is one word. Free. It's about the strongest word in the English language. Free, 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 Mac told Forbes. The opportunity that they might buy this, and they might get it for free. And Jay, when it comes to things like the Kentucky Derby, Mac actually makes such large bets that he changes the odds for the entire board. So real gamblers hate him. His promotions also are thought to bring in, get this, the equivalent of $4 million in advertising. So he's taken what's thrilling about gambling in our brains, which is the chemical reaction that we get from it, and he's just totally imported that into his business, which is just like so many layers of genius. So, Dave, have you ever been in a situation where you kind of looked around at all the people that were around you and kind of thought, like, man, I really feel kind of like an outsider in this moment? The first one that comes to mind is probably 2006. Um, I went to see a buddy of mine in Tennessee, and I, I rode from my home to Tennessee with him in his car. And so he was actually moving there. And so when I dropped him off to come back home, I had no car, so I had to ride the Greyhound home. <laughs> and so it should have been like a five- or six-hour car ride, and it was a 15-hour Greyhound ride. And if you've never been on the Greyhound, it is crazy. I was alone. Everyone smoked. The person in front of me, their chair was way back, so I was squished. Uh, it was horrible. The, the, I remember, this, is, uh, this is the thing that kept me sane, though. I had a, an iPod video. Remember those? I you did. Like, watch movies I on had them. one. And I watched the movie Fight Club on uh, that iPod video. So I've only <laughs> seen Fight Club in like a, a two-by-two screen. Speaking of, before I start on this segment, we got to say a quick RIP to the iPod, which was officially discontinued oh, by yeah. Apple this week. Well, Dave, in the year 1579, a man from Africa arrived in Japan known today by the name of Yasuke. Really, a lot of details surrounding him remain a mystery to this day. We don't know why he was in Japan in the first place. We don't know what specific region of Africa he came from. And records of his life are difficult to find. But what we do know about him has become the stuff of legend. We do know that this man went on to attain the rank of samurai under a unifying Japanese feudal lord named Oda Nobunaga, something rare if not mostly unheard of for a foreigner to become. Yasuke in the years since has appeared in pop culture off and on from being the subject of a popular children's book in 1968 to the current subject of an animated Netflix series called Yasuke and a handful of documentaries and books. In 2019, it was actually announced that Chadwick Boseman would play Yasuke in a film based on the Warriors story before Boseman's tragic passing in 2020. So let's start with what we do know about this man. And what we do know is that he arrived in Japan in 1579 with an Italian man named Alessandro Valignano. The speculation as to why includes everything from Yasuke was a bodyguard to that he had been enslaved. And historians disagree, and there really isn't any solid proof one way or another. But what we do know is that Yasuke found himself at some point sort of becoming a sensation among the locals. Upon his arrival, Japanese records speak of crowds forming to see him. One account even claims that the hysteria was so great that the crowds trampled spectators to death just to catch a glimpse of him. 
And since the average height of a Japanese man in the year 1900 was five foot two and would have likely been even shorter than that in the late 1500s. And since Yasuke was described as being six foot two, he would have towered over most of the local population. The Japanese were also fascinated by his black skin, which would have been a unique sight to most of the people of Japan since it was such an isolated nation at the time. Now, we lose Yasuke a little in the details of the historical record here, but we do know that at some point, he ended up forming a close bond with Oda Nobunaga, a powerful feudal warlord who had united much of Japan under his rule. Nobunaga was fascinated by Yasuke's skin color, his personality, and very quick mastery of the Japanese language. And since Yasuke was not evidently motivated by gaining resources or converting the Japanese to Christianity, which were the goals of most of the Europeans who arrived in Japan. He was quickly accepted into Japanese society and then had a very quick rise to the top. Yasuke became part of the inner circle, and to understand just how deep the bond is, you have to understand that to give the rank of samurai to a person was already a big deal. This is a very elevated position in Japanese society, but then for this rank to be given to someone from outside Japan, that was something that just didn't really happen. For Yasuke to get this official title, it's special, and it shows just how highly regarded he was by Nobunaga. Yasuke and Nobunaga would go on to fight battles alongside each other until the record sort of goes cold right around 1582. In that year, one of Nobunaga's generals betrayed him and attacked him, ultimately trapping him inside of his palace. Instead of dying at the hands of his betrayer, Nobunaga performed Japanese ritualistic suicide to maintain his honor, something that the samurai code of Bushido demanded from a warrior. But before he did, he asked Yasuke to decapitate him afterwards and remove his sword and then take both to his son. While this may be kind of shocking to us now, you have to understand that the head of Nobunaga would have been a symbolic sign of defeat for his betrayer to use as kind of like a trophy of sorts. And removing the head and keeping it safe was actually seen as kind of a sign of great trust between Yasuke and Nobunaga. From this moment, though, the story unfortunately kind of dries up. Due to his allegiance to Nobunaga, Yasuke may have been exiled or he may have had to leave Japan entirely. Records of him go cold, but it's within the mystery that the story of the first known black man to attain the status of samurai has continued to inspire generations of people even some 500 years later. It's a pretty unusual and fascinating tale, and it challenges a lot of cultural norms, which is why over the years it's captured the attention of so many. So a little peek behind the curtain, which you did very good. That's a tough, Japanese is a tough language to navigate. So, you know, Jay had a lot of trip-ups there that you'll never hear uh, because of my, my expert <laughs> editing out on me. this episode. I'm just saying, but, but the point is, I looked up uh, the most difficult languages to learn. So this comes from the uh, trusted source, thelanguagedoctors.org. Japanese is number three. So the third hardest language to learn uh, is Japanese. Number two would be Mandarin. And number one, Arabic. Arabic, okay. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. 
Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Trapp. We'll see you next week. Yasuke and Nobaganda. Nope. Three, two, one. Nobunaga performed Japan, Japanese. Uh, okay. No, no, but no, uh, no, but uh, So, oh gosh, I got tripped up.